Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Vodka O'Clock Podcast, which is supported by generous backers at patreon.com slash amberunmasked. You can find uh, everything else at amberunmasked.com. And especially if you are a backer, you get the weekly cat detective stories a week before anybody else. So joining me back on the show today, this is so exciting, my friend Josh Stallings, author of the Moses McGuire books, and uh, one of my favorite books was Young Americans, and now we're going to talk about his brand new, coming out for 2021, Tricky. Josh, I'm so happy you're here. Oh, I'm so happy to be black. Black? No. Back. <laughs> the coffee will be kicking in soon, swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just finished my, yeah, see, we're cross time zones here. So I, I finished, I just finished mine and, um, you know, so I, and it was particularly good today. I'm not sure why. I oh. added extra, extra cinnamon, which is one of my, <laughs> my favorite things to do. Uh, Erica got me doing that years ago. And she also has me putting like three grains, three grains of salt, just a little bit of, but Ooh. she does it. So I do it. I, I have been insomniac like crazy most of my yeah. life, but lately more, but I was up very late because I, I, I use it to work. So I was up working on a new book last night in the middle of the night. So mornings are either really good if I sleep all night or they're kind of groggy if I don't. Yeah, I, well, I end up taking, see, I have like kind of the opposite of insomnia. I have like nightmares every night. Mm. So, so I end up. And usually, like, it starts to manifest before I'm even asleep. So I have my skin, my skin issues. So yeah. last night, I had to change out of my, one of my favorite t-shirts is my Spock t-shirt, which is really soft. For some reason, last night was driving me crazy. So I had to get up and get changed, take my Benadryl, and try to sleep. And I, and it's just kismet that this t-shirt I chose is this one that I got off a of bonfire. It says, keep calm. You can't see my disability. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, I'm wearing this and I'm going to talk to Josh about this. This is going to be so great. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's, that's a, that what we can and can't see is really interesting to me for how we behave culturally. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and, and, and it's, and I know you, since you're from the the Hollywood life <laughs> in, your, in your past, yes, um, we are going to talk a little bit about that um, before you know, hopefully before yeah. we wrap up the show, um, because tricky ta- does take place in Los Angeles, and uh, of which I know nothing other than what I see on things like Bosch or your books or Stephen Blackmore's books, which yeah. have demons. So I'm assuming that's all real. Um. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, that's true. His Stephen stuff is, is basically documentary. It, you know. <laughs> and we got soul stealers all over the place. It's weird. Yeah, I'm sure. I've, I've been out of L.A. for almost four years now. I'm living in the mountains, still in Southern California, but I'm a mile up. But still, the new book I'm writing is about L- everything is about LA. It's I was born there, and it is for some reason the mistress I keep returning to. And she beats me up, and I go, "Oh, it won't. It'll be different this time. It'll be sweet and gentle." And then I write another hard book about LA. But I do love LA deeply. 
And you come, you get to come back though and unplug and be surrounded by trees. Yeah. These amazing mountains. I love your Instagram. It's so beautiful. Our, my son, Dylan, um, we, he was in LA. We had bought him a house there where we were taking care of him and we moved him to the desert a year ago. So I am now split between La Quinta, which is the most gorgeous desert ever. Okay. A cove that's surrounded by national national wild wildlife preservation land, and I go down to the desert to hang out with him once a week, and then I'm up in the woods. I this is some kind of life. I don't know how I earned it, but I got it. So I'm not giving I, it back. <laughs> you, you, if anybody earned it, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so for the, yeah, for those of you who don't know, I mean, Josh has a, an incredibly interesting life story. Um, and uh, just one part of your life story is that your son, Dylan, uh, is different. Yeah, it's, so, the language we're using now, and it's an ever-moving target, but I'm trying to be more open to the moving targetness of it. The language that has been being used since it was sort of codified and with the Obama administration really kind of said, here's what we're going to use. And we and everyone agrees inside the community. It wasn't like it was dictated, but is he is intellectually disabled. Yes. And there's a lot of ways we used to say that. And that's how we're saying it now. And I've decided I, I was kind of I, I had this when I was writing tricky. I used the R word in the beginning. Yes, I'm going to, that's what I was just going to ask you about. How, how conflicted were you with having, because it's not coming from you, it's coming from characters. Well, I fought with first my agent, okay. Amy Benson Moore, and I had arguments about it because she wanted none of it. And she was right. And then there still was some in in the beginning because I wanted to have, be able to have the discussion of it. I wanted okay. to get to the point where we talked about why not to use it. But then my editor, Chantel over at Agora, who was the acquiring editor on it, she really it was amazing. But she got through to me. She said, in the first 20 pages, you have this, this, and this that we can't have in there. In the first 20 pages, we'll lose them. And what she made clear to me is that I would lose people like me, who, as Dylan's dad, I read a lot of books. But if you use the R word and throw it around cavalierly, I throw the book away. I, you've lost me. And she said, do you want to hurt someone like you? And I went, oh, Chantel, I never want to do that. No, no, no. <laughs> so I took out a bunch of it and we realized I didn't miss it. It really helped me to kind of go through and realize I could use it where I needed to, to make the point. Cause I wanted Tricky who is intellectually disabled in the, in, I mean, uh, Cisco who's intellectually disabled or not. Um, to be able to to explain to the cop why he shouldn't use it and what he should use. And so and, and amongst the police they have the discussion as well which I thought was you know a good point to show that first of all you made a diverse police department and secondly that um, you know sometimes it takes a lesson from somebody else to get through you know. Yeah, it's it's one of those that my mistake, and I really I talked to. It's funny. I was had a there's a there's a uh, man who is very high up in county mental health, who's a friend of mine, and we were having talking over the book and this and that, 
he's also African-American. I suddenly realized what I was doing with my son and with Cisco in the book was I was acting like it was my word. The R word was something I could say because my community. And I'm actually Dylan's ally. I'm not Dylan. I'm not my son. And allies act differently. We don't use the N word if we're an ally. And that really, when I was talking to James about it, just kind of tripped my brain to go, oh, like we're always waking up more and more to these things. And to go, that's in Dylan's community, in the special needs community, in the intellectually disabled community, in the neurodiverse community. In neurodiverse, I'm dyslexic, so I get a little bit of an edge, but that's different. Mm-hmm. In others, I'm, a, I'm an ally, and I think being an ally has different responsibilities. Absolutely. I think that's a really strong point to make, um, whether you're talking about this subject or uh, anything in the trans community or the gay community or, you know, the sexuality spectrum and sex identity spectrum community. I mean, there's um, we're always learning new things. And and as much as I'm on Twitter, sometimes I still see things that I don't understand, you know, the way people identify like, I don't even know what that right. means. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's it, the hardest thing. And I don't, I think this is, I'm going to say something that maybe sexist may not be. I don't know. I think it's harder even for men to admit we don't know shit. And to be willing to say, vulnerable enough to say to someone, I don't know what that means. Would you help me out? Yeah. And I worked with a lot of youth in the Unitarian Church and a lot of youth try to figure out their sexuality, all kinds of things. And I got used to saying with them, with these teenagers saying, listen, I'm an old guy. I get shit wrong all the time. I will say the wrong thing. Just know I love you. I care about you. And call me on it, please, every time. And they would. Yeah. You know. And, I would, a, and you're a white guy. So let's see. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm an all. I, I am. You're these the years asshole. have not been easy for me. <laughs> it's Which been is, rough for you. How, been, how have let, you been? Let's talk about my angst as a white guy. It's so funny because my, my, I'm married to a feminist and my brother's married to a very strong Latina feminist. And after Trump got elected, he called me up and he'd do this. He'd go, hey, brother, brother, how you doing? And I go real quietly, I'm okay. He said, you keeping your head down? I said, oh, fuck, dude, I'm hiding behind the couch. He goes, good, keep it that way. <laughs> because yeah. when you live in the woods with a feminist, you're the only guy. So if she's really mad at men that day, it yeah, feels right. like you're being attacked. Yeah. But. My brother says it this way. It's the best way to look at the times we're living in. In the micro, it kind of sucks right now for us. Big Mm -hmm. fucking deal. Like, who cares? In the macro, with all the people we love in the world, the world's getting better. So, which do you want to live in? Do you want to live in this moment where somebody's mad at you because of both your gender and your race? Or do you want to live in the world where things are getting better for my nieces and nephews and people of color and my family and all these people I love? Well, I think I'll go with the macro if it's okay with all y'all. See, I probably could get away with yelling at my dad because he can't hear me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could be like two feet from him and he'll, you know, he'll ask me to repeat something. And then I get to the, uh, to the point, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to text him. I'm just going to go. I'm just going <laughs> to. <laughs> I have an, this is a good idea, by the way. I think we can make money on this new app. It's a because yeah. Erica's father is going deaf, but he has 
hearing aids has changed his life. But if yeah, we my had dad never put them in, <laughs> her dad did because she got upset, and he loves her, and she's really good with him. And he finally just realized, and when he did, he realized life was better. But if there was an app that we could mute him when we wanted to mute his ear, his earbuds, when we wanted to talk. We could just hit yeah. mute, and he wouldn't hear us, and then hit it, and he'd be hearing us again. Yeah, <laughs> like. Like, hey, Dad, accept these terms and conditions after you read them. And then, <laughs> and then bleep. <laughs> yeah. And then now, here's what you're doing wrong. You got to take the front poster down from the garage. <laughs> and now. Oh, weird days, God. right? Weird fucking days. Weird. Weird. And, you know, as we go through these conversations that are very important to have, um, about identity and language. Um, one of your detectives, um, which, again, as I said, you, the detectives in Tricky um, are very diverse. You know, you got your German chick, you got your, you know, your your Muslim fella and, you know, young and old. And um, so Detective Kazim is Niels Madsen's <laughs> new partner. So you've got the Viking now partnered <laughs> with a young Muslim fella. And, um, and it's funny because they're kind of like, do we like each other? Is he an ass? Like what, you know, like they're, they're getting along in a great way where they're not even really friends yet. You yeah. Know, Cause it's so new. It's so new. But, um, but it's Kazim who introduces this conversation about language and uh, how things are constantly changing and um, you know, the, the curiosity you need to have in order to even look into, oh, what should I be saying? What should I be writing? Um, and sometimes you get it wrong, as, as you pointed yeah. out. So, you know, it was drilled into us for years to use person first language, which was, you know, person with disabilities, person with mm -hmm. whatever. And, and then the disabled community, at least the parts I see on Twitter, um, wanted to change it back because it's it's like it's really important to show what the disabilities are who people are that we're human and it's part of our identity so you know when we say we don't want to sideline it so you know so that way when you say someone who uses a wheelchair um i mean that's still better than saying um wheelchair bound you never want to say bound because it's a device, right you know but yeah so uh i know some you know maybe there's still old timers who are using person first i, I know. it's that all of that is like it's such a fluid conversation that it's sometimes it's hard for me to track like where are we now yeah. and and then there's this other secondary degree with Dylan and my character Cisco with intellectual disabilities, which is Dylan doesn't have the language to talk back about it. He doesn't see, he doesn't, he's part of a community that doesn't have the language to actually take to the streets and say, hey, we don't want to be called that anymore. It doesn't. Right. So it's, it has this other yeah, layer to it. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, Dylan's not. I mean, not Dylan, Cisco's not going to be on Twitter, and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, know, Dylan's not going to be on Twitter. I've I've dedicated the book to my son, who will never read the book, and that's mm -hmm. just the truth, you know. It's, and, but I don't know if you've ever seen it. You know, when we talk about who gets to use 
what words, um, there's a hashtag Crip the Vote. And it's by disabled people who want to bring awareness, especially to those who make the laws and who, you know, to prove how inaccessible things are, even with things like the ADA, how, you know, how limiting the ADA compliance really is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're there. There's one, by the way, that just because of gang culture, mm-hmm. I would never say crypt the vote because A, it's not my community. Mm-hmm. B, it has a whole nother meaning in LA and most of the country now. So mm-hmm. okay. crip is a weird term because you got crips and bloods. So you got that going on too. Okay. Yeah. That didn't even dawn on me because that's not my neighborhood. It's a, it's when Dylan went to, Dylan was mainstream mostly. And when he went to high school, it was a mainstream high school, which means it was a high school mixed campus with special ed, regular ed, super bright ed, whatever the fuck we're calling them all today. Um, But when he went there, we got a note from the um, dean of students saying, be sure your son doesn't wear a blue or a red bandana or predominantly blue or red colors to school. Yeah. And it was the first time because in grammar school that wasn't, he was at small campuses where that wasn't an issue. High school, it becomes an issue in LA where I had to go. Oh fuck! What do they have? What do they have for like team colors out there? Are they just like yellow, like yellow. I, well, yeah, and it, it it came to it was weird to me because it was bandanas was where at the time it really became the signifier because you can't, right. you know. I remember that. Yeah, I think it's why Oakland Raiders everybody loves because they wear black, black and silver. They wear black, black and silver. It's very right. simple. It's no, intimidating. Nobody's gang colors. But growing up in San Francisco. Which pocket you put your bandana in had a different signal inside of the gay community. <laughs> so, exactly. I was, I was watching I was going, this is very that. gay. I'm kind of liking it. And they're like, no, it's not. This is gangs. I'm like, well, okay. Potato, potato, but, but come on. <laughs> yeah. But you cro- if you cross this town border here, <laughs> I was reading about that. They, it's up on Wikipedia about the, the handkerchief code. And because I hadn't heard of it until a few years ago. Um, you know, not being a gay man, it was not something I, I ever, I, um, I mean, if I saw it like down in New Hope or something, well, I don't know if you know Pennsylvania that very well, but, um, New Hope's a tiny little town that has a wonderful gay pride presence. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen the handkerchief code in action. It's, it was crazy in San Francisco. San Francisco, mid-70s when I grew up, it was all in action. But the funniest thing, because I grew up in such a mixed group of people and people who didn't care and sexuality didn't matter and, you know, mm-hmm. none of that was just what... People would look at me, sometimes I've got a bunch of earrings, got them when I was a teenager, my brother gave them to me. Someone would look at me and try and put me down and go, you know, it's on the left side, that means you're gay. And I'd go, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> and what, what the fuck do I care what you think of me? <laughs> Yeah. Sure. Yeah, your girlfriend's still winking at me, so what the fuck do I care? Really? Yeah. But that's a whole nother Oprah. Kazim yeah, exactly. Kazim in the in Tricky. Yeah. What I wanted to say is when you said it, and I wanted to just be clear, I don't write to be diverse. I write to find the voice I need and to deliver what Kazim needed to deliver information wise. 
to to be able to talk about language or to talk to be young, I needed an outsider from the LAPD culture. And you mostly find that you find that in women and you find that in people of color. And I thought you aren't much more outsider right now than a Muslim and an openly Muslim in the LAPD allowed an outsider's view to come into the book. So it's different. And I, I meaning I don't want to get patted on the back for going, God, I'm so diverse. The truth is it's the only way to get to the story I want to tell. And it's the truth of LA. Um, the best compliments I've gotten were from a friend of mine who was a gangbanger and a shooter for a lot of his life and then got sober with me. And we've been friends for fuck 30 years now. And he, j- I had him go through it to just go, what did I get wrong? A couple things I got dead wrong names and things like that. But he said, basically you get it. You've been on the outside of this and close enough to it to see it, to understand gang culture and East LA culture. And that all matters to me, not because it's why I love LA. And when I see a book about LA that does, they'll go, that doesn't have any Spanish in it. I go, well, which part of LA were you in? <laughs> you know, like Rodeo Drive, <laughs> right? which is a Spanish name. So <laughs> you really Rodeo. Rodeo Drive. Rodeo. I love my favorite street name and the way we pronounce things in LA because we mix them up is Los Feliz. It's Los from Spanish, and instead of Feliz, it's Feliz. So it's the Spanish first pronunciation of the first word and the Anglo pronunciation of the second word. Oh, that's a good one. It's pure. That's pure L.A. That's what that's. I don't I'm not offended by that. I love that about L.A. We are this weird mishmash of language and everything else. And it leads you to write when you write about L.A., the Moses books had Armenians in them. You you need that. It also had Mexicans and other Latinx and all kind because that's LA. If you write about LA any other way, you're lying, in my opinion. How the fuck do I know? But in my opinion, unless you're writing about the film business, and then you can write it as male, lily white as you want, and I'll buy it. Because mm-hmm. that's yeah. the experience of not the film industry as they portray themselves, but the film industry as I worked in it. Right is they will, you know, until women and until people of color are running studios, we will not have equality. That's the truth. Right. And I think the Obamas are getting like their own production company or they started one. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Like, wow, this is okay. And it needs, it's what's happened in, you know, in, there are a few big black studios. There's some, but, I don't think you see a change culturally until you get parody that goes with numbers. Mm-hmm. They didn't start seeing the big changes happened in Denmark and Scandinavia towards much more, I think just what Americans would probably call much more socialist, at least half the fucking country. But you, they didn't see that until they had parody in all levels of government, which meant 51% of them were women. And when they got that sexual er, parody, they saw changes. So having one or two or three isn't going to do it. We need to see half the studios owned by people who don't have penises. We need to see a certain percent of those people of color, a certain percent of those people openly gay, a certain percent. It's all of those things before we're going to see entertainment that really has parody. 
you know, they talk about what do we need to do for diversity? Well, I'm sorry to tell you guys at the top, but you need to, some of you are going to lose a job and that sucks. I got it. Okay. But <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a big fear is, you know, they, they don't acknowledge um, that the fact that the door was opened for them as a privilege when it's closed for others. Yeah. No, there's no, it's, you know, the glass ceiling is called that because it's invisible. So, yeah, so um, and it's invisible so they don't have to see it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um, but this talking about Hollywood, uh, do you think that actors should decline roles where a major part of their identity is something like a disability, like um, the recent outrage about Sia in her new movie music stars Maddie Ziegler, I think it's pronounced as an autistic character. And um, people felt that it should be played by an autistic actor. Um, do you think that, that, I mean, how do you view the job of an actor? I, I, this is really going to get complicated, but it's pretty simple in my brain. Um, I'll talk to you about it as a writer. Yes. Um, as a writer, we've had this discussion off and on that unless you are X, then you can't write about X. Um, I've had people ask me throughout the years, how do you write such good women? Women love your writing. You write these amazing female characters. How do you do that? And I just look at them like, what are you talking about? I don't, as a writer, I'm going to write about whoever crosses my mind. And the way I write about anybody is I write about humans. I don't write about a woman or a gay man or a, oh, my favorite character I've ever written, a transgender superhero. You don't write, I don't write about that. I write about, you know, Valentina. I write about I love Valentina. Oh, I love Valentina. She's my favorite. I've never written a character I will love as much. And she's based on a, on a woman I knew in San Francisco as a kid. And uh, so there's, and she's based on my mind and she's based on, you know, but the truth is I don't ever want to be told who I can't write about. And when people go, somebody said, well, are you going to get somebody to, to check you, you know, make sure it's right. I said, who would do that? Who, who would, I do for certain facts. I'm glad to get them. I got them from psychologists and from people who worked, a guy who works in a SWAT team and some LAPD and, and for my friend Nina to make sure gang culture, that I got the facts right. Not that I get the characters right. Because all that somebody knows is their point of view. So if I get somebody who's transgender to tell me what I got wrong in transgender, that helps for languaging. It doesn't help for character development. Because that person can only tell me about their experience of being transgender. I don't think you should write about people you aren't willing to be friends with and you don't know. I think that you can't Google. Yeah. I, if I had Googled gang culture, I would have written a very different book. But, you know, the last going on 30 years of hanging with Nino and hanging with people and being in East LA and living in gang neighborhoods has informed what I write about. So really what I was asking Nino is what did I get wrong? Find out if there's some stuff in there. And there are some things that I got wrong languaging wise. You know, right. at the, so at the when, you know, when I've seen people seek out and I sought out a, a sensitivity reader is now a specific type of editing um, to tell you what you got wrong. And I offered to pay somebody um, for a short story. And because of the, the rest of the subject matter in it, she she just didn't even 
have anything really. She's like, no, I don't want your money. She's like, I don't think this is even a thing I could, I could right. properly give feedback on. I'm like, okay, it's, sure. It. I've had a long. This is a long way around your question. I will get back to it, but I've had a long career as a writer of doing only I believe in first person interviews I believe in meeting with people I believe in writing with being willing to go places that make you uncomfortable and I don't I think I read books and I can tell when they've been google researched because what that does is it gets smaller and smaller a more finite we're all writing the same thing so it must be true in books well y'all learned it from the same fucking wikipedia page so (laughs) Yeah, it seems true, but I think that's where we make cultural mistakes is we get this monolithic idea because you're all going to the same place. You'll never meet Valentina on a page. You'll never meet these people that way. You'll meet them by going out in the world. You'll never talk to somebody about what it was like to pull a trigger in a gang setting. You'll never meet any of that in that that way. You'll read somebody else's writing, but it's... I'm trying to, here's the way that I look at it. To write a scene, you walk into a room and you look at it physically. And what I see in that room is very different than what you'll see as a writer. But if I take somebody's article about that room, I'll never know the things I would have noticed. I'll only know what they noticed. And that's true of people and rooms and places and all of that is that I think you as a writer, it's your job to walk into that room and see what do you see? And that's how, that's where your voice comes from as a writer is what do you see there? And how do you interpret that same room? Because every one of us will see something different. But if we read newspaper articles or we read this book about, or this gang gang guy wrote a book and there's some great books out there. I do read those, but there's great book out and you're reading that and you go, okay, well, if we all read that same book, then we all get the same point of view. We don't see, we don't see all the differences there are. Here's a, I was talking to my brother last night about Wild Bill Hickok. I wrote a screenplay about Wild Bill Hickok forever ago. I've been researching him since I was a kid. I just, it interests me. And it suddenly hit me. There's one fact about him I've never seen in any story about him is when he was hired as a sheriff in multiple places, but in Deadwood, one of the things in his contract was he got a certain dollar number for every dog he killed. Because that's how sheriffs, you know, in towns built their income up. I've never seen Hickok go off shooting dogs in a movie or a book about him. Oh, no. (laughs) If I wrote that, I would have to put it in. Because that's the kind of thing that trips my trigger. That I go, ooh, that needs to be in somewhere. (laughs) That's that's from the kind of books that we write. That's usually like, oh, that's definitely a sign of a budding serial killer. They always start (laughs) with animals. And... That's also true about Hickok. He was sort of a crazy killer, but he also, he was a guy who shot dogs and he also was an interesting character. He was a rock star off subject, but it's just interesting to me. Those are the things that stick in my mind. And so when I go and write about something, my memories are different than somebody else's who's been in the same place in the same time at the same thing, but real events give us even a richer palette to pull our own personal things from. What? I think from what I read about Sia and this and this particular movie, uh-huh. like she, well, people got mad at her just because she even had something to say. They felt that 
they that she wasn't listening but she did have like a very diverse cast otherwise like crew and everything so it's just that that particular character was not chosen to be played by an autistic actor and i don't know i mean it's just the uh, at some point there's change but at other points there's isn't yeah i think with at with it's i get where we're coming from i i get that we started out with natalie wood playing all the indians and our native americans or indigenous people i keep having to catch up to my own self and my own languaging and i apologize um, no, and sometimes it's, you know, hey, it's whatever. But I'm working towards it. And but so that's true. And we had Lon Chaney playing a Chinese detective. Okay. Yes. There's a point at which you have to go, that's where we started, and we really need to not do that. Okay, I got that. And the second wave with uh indigenous people was there played by Mexicans. And you go, well, actually, when you were forced to use indigenous people, we got some pretty amazing actors come out of that. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. my I have an actor, fr- uh, comic friend I was friends with years ago. I haven't seen him in a long time. Uh, Michael Horse, who was in Twin Peaks, weirdly enough. But he was a comic, and he used to start his routine by going, he was an indigenous comic, and he would start his com- routine by going, take my land, please. <laughs> <laughs> Which is only funny if you know old Borschbelt, but what the hell. Exactly. Um, so for actors now, I don't know. I don't know that I want to give up because where it goes to in my mind is, do I want to give up my left foot? That movie. And yeah, that's, that's about a guy who can only move his feet and writes a book. And Daniel Day-Lewis was fucking brilliant. And it's a good movie. And Jim Jordan, it's a, it's a, that's a really good movie. I don't want to give up. I don't want to say Daniel Day-Lewis can't play that because then we get to, Richard III, unless you've you got a curved spine, you can't play Richard III. Take it to that extreme, I go, no, I don't want to do that. I really don't. I think that an actor's job is to get it right. What I think we should be fighting for is, did the actor get it right? Did they get inside that? Did they... It's the same thing with diversity in writing. Don't... If, if, you're right, if you write women, but you write them poorly or stupidly as a man you shouldn't write women i'm sorry that i will call you out on that i'll never but i won't call a woman out for writing a male character or a man out for writing a female character i don't you know just don't get it wrong that sounds really really wrong probably but you know but i think yeah and that's perhaps that's our privileged viewpoint um that that we see it that way and and other people you know are more upset and yeah being upset is valid i'm not saying it's not but to me i just thought like the job of an actor is to act i just you know we have to get away from the black face we have to get a you know a whitewashing of putting scarlett johansson in everything and you know all of all of that is important and we also need to give creative freedom where we can to say i and i don't know about i i don't know when we talk about autism we're we're moving into a territory of 
sometimes visible, sometimes invisible. Yes. And it's, it's, I mean, that's one I've thought about, I think about a lot is people use the R word a lot and have a lot around me and don't know why I get upset. Well, there are people who don't know that my son is and what the, what they're doing is they're using the R word to say something is stupid, broken or ugly. And I will stop and go, do you think, there's a picture of my son. Do you think he's stupid, broken or ugly? Which one are you trying to say that word means? And it's because as his father, I'm invisible to his community. You don't know that he's my kid. Same way, if you speak, I've seen this in Hollywood and I've seen this in liberal settings where someone wants to say something funny and use the N-word, but they look around quickly to make sure there's no one black in the room. Oh, yeah. Right? That's just a white thing. I've Another thing I was talking to James about, and he goes, you people do that? <laughs> I said, James, of course. Dude, man, you've been in the Unitarian Church too long. Get into Hollywood. They do that shit all the time. But the thing about that is they could think they can tell who has a uh, black or brown relative, right? Right. They, and, and that also doesn't excuse when someone uses their black relative as a prop. Like, I can't be racist. I adopted <laughs> an Asian baby. Well, here's the thing. Anytime anybody says I can't be racist, I, it's funny. If I, I was told, I have another friend, Jim Collins, who I rode motorcycles with, who is, man, grew up in the South hard, grew up African-American in the South where that was not okay. A little bit older than me, 10 years older than me, but we'd ride motorcycles together. He is the straightest man I know. He was, a, he was in counseling for youth he was in criminal justice system he's just a straight guy we go into bars and people look at him or go into restaurants in the mountains when we're riding motorcycles and they would look at him like the criminal and i want to go oh dude one of the two of us has done crimes and it isn't the black guy <laughs> <laughs> but jim made me read a book and i'm trying to think of the name of it, but it was about white privilege and because he said before we can talk any more about this i want you to read this book that just came out there's a guy talking about his own white privilege and he said, no, let's talk about this book. And I think it's why it's important that you have people from diverse backgrounds in your life is because that's who it's only somebody who loves you will say, you need to read this first and then let's chat. <laughs> mm, that's a good point. And it was and through him because I know he loves me. I love his wife. I love him. They're, he's a guy I, I totally dig. I've told him multiple times that Jim, you're who I want to grow up to be because he's a good man. Well, that helped me. And then he and I could talk about white privilege. And at first it's upsetting to those of us who grew up poor because there's all sorts of other, other privileges. Well, I grew up very poor and this weird combination of very poor when we were young. And then my mother got her PhD. And by the time I was a teenager, we were lower middle-class. So I've had both experiences, but my worldview was formed by the time I was six of being poor. So I think of myself as I crawled out of nothing, like my brother did. He feels the same way. Like we go, we had nothing and we built this. We built lives. And now you're saying it isn't, our, our struggle wasn't worth it because we were white. But really breaking that down and tearing it apart, you go, no, nobody's taking away what you did. But what we are going to have to all admit to is you had, is, is given all those same circumstances, your skin color gave you an edge up. Yeah, it might have been during the interview process. It might have been seeing your name looking like a white person's name on a resume. Yeah. To pretend that isn't true 
is a fucking lie. Right. And and it doesn't take away from the amount of work it takes for a dyslexic kid coming out of poverty to wind up with, you know, five novels to his name. That's a huge thing I'm very proud of. It doesn't take my pride from that. What it does do is say, somewhere out there, there's a guy just as good as you who didn't even get that shot, who didn't even believe it was possible he could write a book, you know, because he was dyslexic and brown or whatever the circumstances were. And to accept that doesn't diminish what I've done, but it does make me say, okay, then I've got to do more to open the door. There's a, I talk about my brother a lot because I'm thinking about him right now, but he said economically, he said there are two kinds of people. And he said, there are people who want to make sure they get their piece of the pie. And he said, and there are people like me who say, well, let's just make a bigger pie. And I think that's the message I wish more people thought about in our country when they worry about where's my piece of the pie. Well, if you're worried about your piece of the pie, figure out how to make a bigger pie, figure out how to make more not how do I get mine? And I think that's how we control poor people. It's how we control kinds. Ah, uh, yeah, you're you're not doing good. These guys running around with Confederate flags, their ancestors didn't own the house. They lived mm-hmm. in a slightly better shack than the slave quarters. Mm-hmm. But they had someone to look down on, so they thought they were doing pretty good. Well, we can't live like that anymore. We can't. We got to stop. <laughs> yeah, there's the the there's no competition of uh, misery or disabilities, um, you know, there, I see a lot of people apologizing, uh, like over apologizing on, on Twitter um, because they're like, oh, I know I have it. I know I have it better. I should just not vent. And it's like, well, no, part of the mental process is venting. I mean, you shouldn't keep stuff bottled up. So if you're feeling that you're, you know, your chronic pain is shitty today, then say so. And just because your chronic pain maybe isn't as bad as somebody else's pain, you know, it's okay. It's, you know, there's no, there's no trophy at the end. (laughs) Maybe there is. I don't know. Let's get into the religion. God, I hope not. (laughs) Tell me, uh, yeah, is there a participation trophy? Um, So at one point, you even have Detective Madsen questioning uh, belief structure. Kind of like, it's in this very small private moment. You know, he's in the cabin in the middle of the woods and, um, you know. And he's, you know, questioning the universe. And he's just kind of like, well, I don't know. I guess I don't believe in anything. So, so you know, with your background and, you know, your years with peace-loving people, what, you know, where do, where do we end up? Is there a trophy at the end? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've, I, my, my battle with, with faith shows up in all my work. I think my best description of it came from Moses McGuire, who said, if there is a God, he better vest up because I'm coming for his ass. <laughs> because some days when I'm also sober 30 years, which takes a certain amount of accepting of faith for me, because I did it through AA and, and it t- takes a certain amount of, of accepting of some sort of faith, but it's the path of faith is always changing for me. It, it doesn't fit into an organized religion for damn sure. But when my son was 26, he was struck with, after being a, just a great kid, just amazing. 
Yes, he was. People would look at him and he wasn't speaking early and he had a big tongue and there's some other crap. But you know what? He was a great kid and fun to raise and silly and wonderful. And then he got struck with mental illness and he had these rages. And I got so upset when it happened. I was in Texas on a vacation with him and he just, we had to take him to the hospital. I just got, it was just horrific. And I got so mad. I was just, I was so angry at the idea of God, that a God that would do this to my son just outraged me. And I was talking to my sponsor and I said, I'm just fucking angry. I don't, he said, do you want to drink? I said, no. He goes, okay, that's good. Well then be as fucking angry as you want. Go outside and yell at God. God can handle it. Well, yeah, I guess so. That's what that's formed a lot of my view is I don't think there's a there is not some days a benevolent force in the universe. There is not some, all of our, there is and there isn't. Life is good and life sucks. Shitty things happen for no reason. So I can't believe there's an ultimate plan to it all. I don't think there's a scorekeeper in the sky. And, you know, I think if karma works, it works like this. If you're a good person and do good things, then generally better things happen for you because that's one of the mechanisms of how life works, not because there's someone keeping score. I don't think you can be, I don't think you can be a shitty person and at the end you get to go to some magical place. I just don't buy it, but that's me and we all, and that will change by tomorrow. I swear to God it will. Things, Yeah. I think the path of spirituality really is growth. It's always moving. It's but yeah, I don't think there's anybody keeping score. I just don't. <laughs> I know, and this, you know, and I'm the same way as you. Like, you know, day to day, I could feel something a little bit different. I love having a, a faith in something bigger than humanity. Um, I love gods and goddesses uh, just because it makes it easier to connect with. Yeah. Um, but uh, especially in the yoga world where where we do have these tenets um, about how to be a better person. Um, it's not about the payoff. I mean, karma is, is, you know, it's a, a word that comes from there um, yeah. about, it just means action. Um, but it's, you know, in, in these principles and guidelines, there's nothing that then says, and so then you get, you know, like, like, oh, do one nice thing today. And then one nice thing will happen to you. Like, it's not, like you said, it's not a balance and you might not know when it is, you know, and, and it may, may surprise you. I think that's, I, I do think I understand. And it, sometimes it's an outlook. I will, I, I will admit there that there are people who just get shit on and you just wonder why like why doesn't that person make a hundred thousand dollars a year but this asshole does you know if if you find a way to make sense of any of that of of the economics of this world let me know because i can't i you know i know i I would have asked you because you're the white dude so i would don't i have no idea okay well i i'll tell you what the white dude knows shit italy (laughs) um i I know that I have stepped out of the game in many ways, leaving Hollywood. In many ways, I stepped out of caring about money. 
it was a choice we made. I mean, to move away from L.A. took giving up a lot of things, a lot of privilege that money buys you. But it has led me further and further into a discussion with my books about people, writers get caught up in who's the best seller and who's made this much money. Oh, that guy got this big advance. And, and, and there's a lot, it's why I stay away from social media when I start feeling tight in my chest. Um, because what matters is who makes my book better. It's like Agora Polis, Polis Agora, whatever the, Agora is the, is the, who's publishing my book, but it's under a bigger, slightly bigger independent publisher, Polis. Agora doesn't impress anybody when you say you're being published by them, except for they're getting a lot of notice out and they're doing a lot of good books. But the reason to go with them is the truth is my editor and the woman who runs Agora made my book better. And I'm to a place in my life where that's what fucking matters. At the end of the day, I will die with or without money in the bank, but what will go on and what exists in the world is what I write. And what matters is what I write and who I love. So it comes down to who's going to make the book better and stay away from looking at bestseller lists. And weirdly, with that attitude, I'm now getting reviews from places I never thought I would. I'm getting national reviews. I'm getting, it's like somehow not giving a shit has helped. <laughs> that's, and that's amazing, especially because I think it was only a week ago the headlines in publishing were that Simon and Schuster was going to gobble up some other outfit. And yeah. so now, now we're down to like, you know, one, you know, it used to be like the big six, like in comics, we have the big two. Right. Um, so it used to be like the big six in publishing and now we're down to like two. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't, it sounds old fashioned when I realized what we always called them was legacy publishers. That sounds like the old guard, doesn't it? I want to be with who's doing what now. And I realized I self-published and put out a lot of books independently myself, and it was too much work. And with Tricky, it took me over a year to find the right place. But it's so beautiful. I love the cover. Well, Chantal and her people did that. I didn't do it. It just showed up to me. And I looked at it, and I had some little suggestions, and they were minor. I don't know if it made it better or worse. They changed it because they like me. But it's still a brilliant fucking cover. It's, I didn't have to do it. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to hand do everything. And for me, stepping the next step up into, a, you know, an indie publisher that's got some chops, and I noticed they were actually getting books out, is a huge change. Now, with the book I'm writing on now, there's a bunch of talk of, uh, oh, you can get a bigger publisher. I'm like, I don't know that I want a bigger publisher. The truth is that we'll... So that's an agent discussion, but I love Agora and I love that they made the book better. And ultimately that's all that has to matter to writers. We got to stop caring about how we get paid for this shit. I understand in America and in where we live today, it has real world complications. Like do you get healthcare is based on how much money you make. Right. And that sucks. I think that's, it's hard for writers right now it's always been hard for writers. It gets harder the more it contracts because there's less money on the table. And as we are the original gig economy, we have to cover everything ourselves. And yeah, because we don't have 
you know, no, you don't have a national health care. You're fucked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like being like now at my, you know, perhaps my poorest because, you know, teaching three yoga classes a week doesn't cover the bills, really. Right. And one of them, one of them was a donation based class. So sometimes I made, you know, two dollars um, <sighs> because to me, that was, you know, my role as giving back to the community. Um you know, it's like, yay, some of it's paid and some of it's not. And, you know, but I have the privilege of living with my parents who pay for everything else. So, you know, it's like, or, you know, or my boyfriend, I don't want to, you know, he's going to listen to this yeah. and going to be like, hey, I just wrote you a big ass check. Um, <laughs> I love you, baby. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because sometimes, sometimes mama goes a little crazy and like spends too much money on the cats. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> it was, hey, you know, you know, Yule and Christmas, the cats, you know, they needed some trinkets and I went a little overboard. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I bought the, the dog in the family in his side of the family. I bought the dog like some very gourmet things. <laughs> you know. I actually understand the cat thing because cats are psychopaths and if you don't take care of them, they will fuck you up. Dogs, oh, you, yeah. you can bring them an old sock and they'll go, you brought me a sock. You love me. <laughs> oh, especially this dog because this dog eats literally anything, especially if it's not food. Um, yeah. Um, but- yeah. But that's I that is it's I think it's a I years ago read a thing in it was one of the London papers and they were talking about we are getting to a time when the only people who can afford to be writers are going to be retired people and the well very wealthy. Now yes. that's not true. But what it takes to be a writer and get to the place where it pays some of your bills is having to be have whatever it takes the physical health and the mental health to be able to work two jobs because like I worked in film I worked 60 70 hours a week doing that and I wrote my first books on lunch breaks and at night when I got home it's probably why I'm an insomniac because I'm not used to sleeping well not everybody has that physical stamina they don't and it isn't like i'm going oh look aren't i great not if people when i i had epstein bar for a while for six weeks i couldn't do anything so i get it but those are the people who are now getting able to write books it's something yeah, that's, and that's me yeah because it's like i you know and i tell people i'm like i don't want to you know i don't want to teach at night i'm like forget it two o'clock hits something happens to my body and my my mental state and i just start shutting down you know and <laughs> You know, and so that's so I consider since I do consider reading part of being a writer. Hell uh, yes. <laughs> I, I my afternoon is my my lunch and my you know consumption of stories time. You know, it's, if it's not a great show, then it's a book. It's one one of the. I I know you you've worked with Patreon well. I know, and Tom Pluck's new book is amazing, mm-hmm. and he's writing it through Patreon. We're having to find new ways to get some bills paid. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, I do get, I, I will say this. I do get bitter when I see people who are already superstars coming over to those indie platforms like Kickstarter <laughs> and Patreon. I do get, I do get bitchy. I'm like, you're, I'm like your last movie. You, you probably made a million dollars an episode or whatever for right. a TV show. And, you know, and they're like, Oh, but it's connecting directly to the fans. And I'm like, 
All right. But it would have connected directly to the fans if Netflix made it too. Right. You yeah, know? no, that's, I agree with you. I, I don't think, I think that's not called getting, let's change getting bitchy to being an activist. Yeah. Because I think we need to be activists. And I think we tend to, you've, you've used the language of the patriarch, as my wife would say. <laughs> oh, but I, I do use it. I absolutely do. I, and, and especially if you watch enough British television, they're, words are a little bit different so if somebody wants to say cunt and twat i'm just like whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> I just, it's like well, okay you know. it's, these are these are i i think i mean i get it i get that there is something edgy and cool if you're a filmmaker and you've got some big movies so people will follow you to go and i'm doing a kickstarter project but also the recognition that then you took it from someone is probably got to be addressed mm -hmm. that you took a slot from someone or how do you make a bigger pie it's one of those two conversations i'm not sure at this point yeah. i don't know how to do those things because i i as a writer once i'm in the like i've had i'm for me to write a novel is a lot of fucking work. It's hours and hours and hours. And I have to stop. I had to stop doing short stories every once in a while. I'll write one, but not very often. I had to stop doing pretty much everything except for that novel because it is all consuming. They keep getting bigger. Every book I write is harder than the one before it. Now, I'm either getting worse or I'm pushing myself further. You're I'm pushing yourself further. God, I hope so. Yeah. Because, I mean, this book is—it's stellar. It's you know, the, you know, when I when I read Young Americans, I was blown away. And then I, you know, I was glad that you, you know, you offered me a, a copy of this, and I was like, hmm, let me see if I can get like you know, the the download through NetGalley and bless their hearts, they, uh, you know, they, they approved me. So I'm like, hey, I'm legit. <laughs> it's <laughs> there is there is in this world, and it's. There are two things, and I thought about you and why I pushed for this. Um, there are things that are inside your echo chamber, and it isn't going to help as far as promotion. And my publisher talks about that a lot. She said, you know, the same 500 people or whatever it is that buy your books are going to buy your books, but let's get you out bigger. And then there's someone like you that I just want to have the discussion with. Mm -hmm. And this gives I us a reason to get together and talk about things <laughs> that, that we both care about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, especially during a pandemic and quarantine where, you know, we don't get to sit around in a big comfy lounge and just fit. <laughs> no, we're stuck with this, which is fine. But it is a good opportunity to kind of both of us talk about the things that matter to us right now. You know, yeah. This, and, 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 you know, the, so the, the economics of writing, the, you know, the subject of, disabilities and activism and feminism and you know and police violence again this is part you know part of the the book um these are things that i don't know maybe they'll surprise people i i think there's a lot what was i spent the longest time looking into policing in america that was the longest bit of my research back and forth because it was and this is before this last the country blew up anybody who's been watching it goes well this didn't just happen now we have pretty fucked up policing and lapd we go back to daryl gates saying that 
the reason the chokehold killed black men more than white men wasn't that they were racist. It was that they had a thing where they didn't have the same capillaries and they couldn't get enough blood to their brains. And it was a physical problem with black people. That's the country we fucking... Yeah, I... Oh, man. Well, I saw that pop up in here. I was like, ooh, real history coming through. Because I wasn't sure if some of the names... Like, you have, like, that there's actual, like, sheriff's gangs. Yeah, well, that's all. Now, what I did do is I did any place, like, with the sheriff's gangs, all of that's real. The lawsuits are real. There's a woman who was in the middle of a lawsuit, and because as a deputy, she was told she would either have sex with the members of the Banditos, which is a sheriff gang then they wouldn't back her up if she was out on parole patrol Mm. she would get killed because no one would back her up unless she had sex with them as an initiation you know fuck you people i mean i'm sorry that stuff is but that's all real that's you know i had a judge once ask me for jury duty did i think a uniform made someone more believable and i said well my grandfather was a cop and one of the best men i ever knew and we got ramparts on the other side of the scale. So, no. I was asked to leave at that point. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, you're too well read. You know about this. Well, anybody who is alive in L.A. knows about ramparts. We just don't admit it always. But we know about it. We know what happened. We knew there were robberies going on in, in the Hollywood division. All this stuff is real. Yeah, I was... Uh... I, when I was reading that and knowing how how researched it had to be, I was like, huh, you know, I always see this stuff like in the form of fiction, you know, and and not realizing, hey, that, you know, that came from somewhere, um, you know, because you think to me, it's like there was always like a smaller scale, like the 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 cops um, who go around like this was even a story arc in Bosch. Um, the cops would go around to like the convenience stores and get their protection money and then, you know, or just like take whatever they wanted. Um, and you know, that protection money thing, it was sort of like, it's like, okay, but instead of the the mafia, it's the cops. Here's a, a true, my grandfather really was, he was beat cop. And when he started an orphan kid who didn't even graduate, didn't make it to high school, who went from beat cop to chief of corrections for the L.A. Sheriff's Department. But one of the stories he told me, he said, here's what I tell my my guys. I said, guys at the time, he probably said that. I don't know if he did, but he, he was one of the first guys to, to promote an African-American woman to sergeant. But he was also a Republican and talked like a fucking Republican. But anyway, <laughs> forget all that. The story that he told me, he said, here's what I would tell my guys. I said, you don't even get a free cup of coffee because how that goes is they give you a cup of coffee. Then the next week you're in there and now your friends is Joey. He always gives you a cup of coffee, maybe a donut. He said, and then you find out they have a card game in the back, but it's Joey and his friends. So you turn the eye. He said, and that's how corruption starts with a cup of coffee. And that's how we get where we are today, where guys are picking up bags of money. Yeah. He also hated Daryl Gates, by the way. (laughs) Well, at least he had a good quality there. My grandpa was a great cop. He never fired his gun once outside the range. And was proud of it. I never saw his gun as his grandkid. He said, I don't want anyone to associate that with me. He was a marksman. Oh, interesting. Never, who didn't, but he said, once you pull a gun, you got to kill someone. There's no other choice in his mind. He said, so I've never pulled my gun on the job. Well, I think- <laughs> so this, this is a great, you know, scenario for then the opening scene of Tricky 
which is, you know, you've got this Viking cowboy detective, Madsen, um, detective literally because and i mean detective and cowboy he like you know he, he's out of the city he's just like you he's out of the city he's done you know and he lives in, with his grandpa with dementia up in the woods um but so madison comes across this scene where guns are pulled and 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 aimed at what looks like a murder you know it looks like there's a guy standing over a body and he happens to have a gun in his hand now was it, it, i don't recall you saying that he was that cisco was was aiming the gun at anything it was just kind of like well the gun was in his hand yeah um and so the compassion that madsen finds and you know, whether he believes that he's indestructible or doesn't care, I don't know, but he doesn't have a vest. He doesn't have anything approaching the subjects. Um, meanwhile, he's got to convince these uniform guys, hey, lower the weapons. You're making it's... it worse. Yeah. How? So where does this, where can we expect compassion to come from in a system that is based on oppression and violence but well the thing about a big organization right is it is full of every kind of human and there are a lot of people inside and outside of the police force that are good people and there are a lot of people who are bullies and like to have guns but I've run into cops who are good guys. And I don't mean few bad apples or any of that crap. There's an equal amount of assholes. I've run into those because it's systemic. There's a systemic racist component. And that's the other part is that the guy with the gun, it looks like a gang member and is Latinx looking. Yeah, so, and he's covered in tats. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, he would right away, there is this belief in the police force that that is the enemy. But there are equal amount of people out there who are good and care about and got into this because they wanted to help people. Or there's people like my grandfather who got into being a cop because he needed a steady paycheck because he had kids. And turned out he's a good guy. So there are good people and there are bad people. So I don't think it's unbelievable that we see all the time someone gets killed and it's awful and we have to stop it. They're systemically, we need to train people better how to de-escalate. But there have always been cops who are good at that, and there are cops who weren't good at it. Do and you watch that, The Rookie? No. Do you ever do you no. ever watch The Rookie with Nathan Fillion? The very first episode. That's even if you just watch one episode, just watch that because the joke is he's a guy in his forties and he's changing careers and he's going to the LA Police Department. Um, which I don't know. They probably have an age limit. You're probably not even allowed to actually do that. But anyway, <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> um, and the very first thing is he's all about his compassion because he's got experience just in life from somewhere else. So, right. um, you know, so it's about, you know, how he can talk someone down from, you know, from jumping or from whatever the situation. Um, but in LA, you have this, mental health team which you know i don't know any other i've never seen that before so i that, don't know if if every big city has that mental health team i don't know our smart team is it's a it's a it's a deeply flawed idea though in la la just so we have a smart team and 
it is one county psychologist slash psychiatrist, either or, and one police officer as a team. And they're called to the scene where there is someone in mental distress. The flaw in the system. <laughs> well, I mean, there's more than one team, but that is oh, what, okay. that is who they send out. And they're okay. they're underfunded like anything else with mental health. But that's who they send out. But the flaw in it is the first guys who roll up are who get to choose if they're going to call on the smart team. So if you're really compassionate, you get pushed because LAPD is based on the idea of specialization because it's such a huge organization. But it's also that goes back to Daryl Gates. It's a military idea. If you test really good with, with a rifle, you wind up in SWAT. If you test really high with empathy, you wind up in the smart team. Okay, so the guy with the most empathy should be on the smart team. I get that. These guys are amazing. I've seen them work. I saw them work with my son. But the guy who rolls up and decides whether to call him in is not the guy with the most empathy or training. He's just a street cop. So will they make the right call? Who knows? You know, I was told this phrase, and it's in the book, the one of the guys, a senior member of, of, the smart team was talking to me and kind of I'd gotten a connection with him. So I was standing, we were talking about how it works. And I told him, I said, you know, uh, the problem with this, I told him the problems I had with, it. I said, and the street cop almost shot my son because my son couldn't identify what a badge meant. Mm-hmm. I said, and that if smart team hadn't come, he would have been shot. And he said, yeah, we got some knuckleheads on the force. And I thought as a dad to tell me that a guy that almost murdered my son is a knucklehead is really fucking wrong. I didn't yeah. say that because I was in the middle of the heart of the beast in their giant well, glass tower. But yeah, there's a crisis at the time, so yeah. But the truth is, knucklehead, really? Yeah. That belief inside now that's systemic. There's a yeah. belief that a cop who kills someone is a knucklehead. No, they're a murderer. When Trump but, says there's good people on both sides, yeah. or don't be so kind when you put them in the police car, which people forget. He did that in front of all of these police officers. Could you hit their head when they go in just a little? That's a Trumpism. So there are that systemic racism, but also systemic, just non-caring. And the systemic, if you're different than us, if you are disabled, if you're in mental crisis, if you're in any way different, then they can do whatever the fuck they want. And then no, there is no charge. They will not go to jail. They will just be called knuckleheads by their department. We need to change a lot of shit. And I've seen chiefs all over the country talking. What they've been saying is what we need money for is training. Because training, two months of sensitivity training, means we need to pay for the sensitivity training. We also need to pay for two months of another person to take that guy's job, our gal's job, that officer's job. Um And they don't have the money, but what they do have the money in this country for is no problem getting the military-grade weaponry. We have no problem at a a federal level getting tanks for police forces. We just don't have the money in Congress. We don't have the money anywhere in state budgets to pay to train our officers not to kill our people. That's fucking wrong. There was an article last week that said that, you know, the spending this money on the tanks because of, you know, protests and curfews and, and everything that that's been happening, that it it didn't lessen anything. You know, like it's, it didn't the whole the whole selling point of we need these, you know, things like, you know, armored personnel carriers or whatever they were using and these bigger, badder guns. 
you know, nothing changed and it didn't, it wasn't for the greater good. And that started with Daryl Gates and the 1984 Olympics. (laughs) He was the first guy to bring in military weapons into the police force. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's um, that's a lot about what I write about. I'm I, I'm writing a lot about the LAPD. My new book's about the LAPD and the '84 Olympics. But a lot of what I think about is that idea. I could have told you that tanks have never de-escalated a situation. But if you're willing to look at part of your population as the enemy, then I see why you want tanks. It's fear. Yeah, and. and Fear politics are ruling right now in our country, but it isn't. It isn't Trump. It's not just him. I don't want to get. I, you know, when I hear people go, "God, Trump's gone," yay, I go, "Yeah, we got a cultural problem. We don't He's have a Trump a- problem. He's an asshole. Got it. He gave a target for our rage. But the truth is, he got right- there for a reason. He got there because he was supported <laughs> and so. supported throughout the entire Republican Party. And when people freak out over this whole idea of Defund the police. You can't say that. They'll be in our doors. Fuck yes, defund them. I'm sorry. I would do. I would fire every cop in America and say, apply for your job tomorrow. We'll think about rehiring you. The unions don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that, but that's what I would do. Well, and it's, I, I mean, it, there's more training to be a massage therapist than there is to be a, an armed police officer. Yeah. And... Honestly, there is more repercussions to getting therapy, your job wrong, a physical therapist wrong, or to get any of this wrong than to be a cop if you get it wrong. You get, you have your, yeah, you get your license pulled. (laughs) Yeah. Guess what? Cop, you don't even get your gun pulled. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's that insanity. And I haven't run into a cop yet who disagrees with what I'm saying. That's the truth. I haven't run into a good cop. Politically, they got all kinds of ideas. And and you meet them on a political stage, they will tell you how wrong you are. But they all get it because there's a whole, not all, but a lot of people went into policing to serve and protect. And then it got bent along the way. And if we could say to them, hey, dude, are you tired of dealing with X, X, and X? Wouldn't it be better to have mental health professionals step in on that job? And they're going, yeah, that sounds like a better plan to me. Yeah, especially when so many of the calls are things like domestic violence. It's like, is that really where you want to bring more violent I mean, other than, okay, you might need to physically restrain somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, I, that I understand. But um, it's, and it never has, we have a broken view. We Our teachers a, should not be like armed in order to oh, protect their classrooms. That's ridiculous. No, and that has, that's a whole, that's a, a whole, whole other show. A whole nother Oprah, which is instead of taking guns away, instead of having some fucking, and I'm an avid shooter, by the way, I say, take them the fuck away. Get them, please. Lock them all up. Because we obviously, as a culture, aren't smart enough to be able to live with them. We're shooting kids. Sorry. We're going to all. I mean, you know, and that's like the, you know, a lot of the school stuff is it's you know it's other students i mean these are kids getting their hands on things it's Um, you know and other times it's you know like they said every once in a while you come across somebody where it's a legit mental health issue but 
you know, like you pointed out here in Tricky, they're more likely to be the victims. Yeah. No, it's whenever you watch, I, I, I worked in Hollywood for a while, Hollywood, in the Hollywood of Hollywood. And I walked down the street and I watched people cross the street because there was a black man walking up. And I thought, if you know your history, if you really read history, if you really understand it, you will know on any given day, a black man walking up a street full of white people is more in danger of being hurt than the white people. So fucking stop crossing the street. Because mm -hmm. what you're afraid of is a myth. That's not true. The truth is. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's just the truth. That's who we, that's where we live. But fear is easy and it's easy to demonize. And then they go, well, you're demonizing the police. Well, no, I'm just tired of them shooting my, my friends. Okay. Yeah. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of. God, you definitely don't want to, don't want to in that close proximity to your son ever again. No, I, I, I have, I said in an essay I just wrote, and I, my wife questioned me, and I thought, she said, is that, I said, I think calling 911 when he was in mental distress was one of the worst decisions we ever made. And she said, was it really? I mean, he made it out. I said, yeah, but he made it out because of just weird odds, because a smart team got there just in time, because of some other things. I still hold that as the worst decision I ever made. We don't have a 911 for mental health crisis. No. We don't have... It's all, it's so weird because the 911 operator isn't given the power to choose. There's nobody, and then they'd have to be educated in, in how to figure that out. So it's down to the guy with a gun rolling up and deciding what you need. No, thank you. Sorry. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm an advocate of defund the police. I really am. I'm an advocate of refund them. And people go, well, that could have been better advertising. We could have found better words. No, what the truth is nobody wants to face the facts of it, the truth of it, that we have a systemic problem, not a few bad apples. Some are good, some are bad, but even good people inside a systemically wrong system that believes violence will, will make a situation better, even the best of them can't do much about that. That's a systemic problem. It's, and thus, I write about the cops. Exactly. <laughs> and I... You know, I I, you know, I wrote about Madsen. One of the other reasons I wrote him, wanted to write him when I was trying to figure out what he would do was about my grandfather. But I wanted to write, I've read a lot of good books about bad cops and they're good and they're true. But I wanted to write an honest portrayal of a good cop trying to be a cop in the world we live in. And because I wanted to see that, I wanted to see that in the culture. I wanted to see that. And I wanted to see someone who was intellectually disabled in the culture as a full figure, not as a cutout. Yeah, you know. so I that's just it. It's not um it's not like a love letter to the police by any stretch because we you know, we can't talk about the spoilers. So Yeah. Yeah. Um uh so just bear that in mind if you're thinking, "Oh god, this is some, you know, you know, police jack-off material." It's not. Um But it's <laughs> and, and it's also not an anti-police story. It's Exactly. I mean, the truth of you're saying there's there's men and women, there's a diverse police force. That is LAPD. LAPD is diverse in a lot of ways. You'll walk into a squad room and you'll find people. You'll find women. You'll find all kinds of things. But that also doesn't stop the problems, you know? So on that note, Josh. <laughs> yes. yes. I could keep talking and then, you know, people are going to wonder why is this episode so long? Um, 
Um, so Tricky is out in 2021, and obviously everybody should be able to pre-order that. Um, oh, is there anything else that you can talk about? Probably not. Anything else? To promote. No. No, until when Tricky comes out, as soon as it's out, I'll be able to start talking about the new, there's a new book I'm writing, but it's, you know, there's always a new book. The The problem with being a writer is part of you wants to just talk about your, what you're in the middle of, because it's what's consuming your brain. Yes, I understand but that. readers have to catch up to you. So, <laughs> yeah, I, the only thing I can say is Tricky is available it's available through Indie Bound, which is another way to get books that isn't Amazon. I love both of those. I don't have a I don't have a beef with any of it, but I do have a beef with right now we're losing independent bookstores. So you they can order it. They can order it and like any other book. I would wish people would order it from their local independent bookstore. That's I have a friend yeah, in Seattle. That's say. where she gets all my books through that. Because we need to support them because when this pandemic's gone. We're going to have less of them. I already know that because I know some that have gone under. We're going to have less independent bookstores, and that is not good for anyone. And it's not yeah. just a writer talking. I'm, I'm totally shocked when I see people opening businesses up during this time. I'm amazed. Yeah. And, I, you know, bookstores were having a hard time before this. So any way I can say support your local bookstore. And libraries. Please. And libraries. <laughs> oh, okay. This is the greatest thing ever. I, neither of them have come out, so I have to. I'm on a little on the QT, but I have gotten rave reviews from both of the big journals that send out to librarians, and I am happy about that than anything I can think of because I love libraries. That's so great. If you grew up poor in America and learned to write, I bet you went to libraries a lot because <laughs> I did. Yes. Story time, man. Yeah, without without librarians who didn't ever judge you by. You were a hippie kid who came in there who was dyslexic, and it was a librarian that figured out that I needed big type books because it would help me read them better. That is awesome. They really save our awesome. lives all the time. I love libraries. <laughs> yes, they they are vital. Please support them. Even though uh, they're socialist. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about that? They're provided by your tax dollars and donations. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, all right. So then before you go, um, obviously there'll be links in the show notes for where people can follow you. Um, you know, Josh Stallings writer or writer Josh Stallings. Um, is there anything that you want to recommend that's, you know, not yours right now? It could be a show, a movie, a book. Yes. There's, um, you mentioned Tom Pluck's Patreon, Patreon, however. Oh, Fox Girl Running is sublime. It gets me through most hard hard weeks in the pandemic. The book that he has on his Patreon page. Um, uh, Elizabeth Little has a book out called Pretty as a Picture. Oh, yeah. That I is to take a note of that. It is stunningly good. And it's about, it's a, it's, through the through the voice of uh of she never says it looks like someone on the spectrum it's an amazing book it's an amazing detective story it's an amazing story on a movie set i was a film editor and, and the character's a film editor and she just nails what that feels like to do that job 
inside inside the actual creative process. Love that book. I think that really connects here. There's so Elizabeth Little's book, Pretty as a Picture. I think we've had some great books out. I just read Gary Phillips' new book, and I can't think of the name of it suddenly because my brain went soft. I'll think of it oh, yeah. and I'll put it on okay. my page. But Elizabeth Little's book is really worth picking up. Great. Okay. Well, read. Uh, read. <laughs> Keep reading. Um, however, you digest that. If it's audio books, it counts. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, so Josh, thank you so much. And, you know, thank Erica for, you know, uh, I know that you got to do all these like press things. So, um, oh, and I know she's your first reader of everything, right? So, and my first editor of everything. She yeah. Is, so yeah, she heard so, I was going to be talking to you, and she was very happy. She said, "Oh, good." <laughs> yeah. So she's she's got a break. Hopefully, you guys stay warm this winter. I know you've already had snow out there. We're getting snow today. Oh, hunker um, down. <laughs> hunker down and keep writing and keep reading. Um, so. Thank you guys for listening. Um, as always, you can find out uh, everything else, the show notes at amberunmasked.com. You can support the show at patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And the Instagram is also amberunmasked, but Twitter is at Elizabeth Amber, just to be difficult. Uh, <laughs> ew, yeah, so especially if you like the cat pictures and the cat stories, go to Instagram because um, there's usually stuff every day. Um, I can never take too many cat pictures. So um, <laughs> even the bad ones, my bad wildlife pictures to me are my own genre. I'm like, see that blur? That was a hawk. You know, <laughs> that, you know so um, yeah, so go and support whatever you can. Um, thank you so much.